This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium. I first heard about Ben Horowitz after he co-founded Andreessen Horowitz with Mark Andreessen. Before that, I hadn't really heard much about Ben, although after that, I went back and found out about LoudCloud and some of the other things he has done. Ben is a really thoughtful guy. He is a venture capitalist at the very top of that food chain, but he also takes time to write books. And I think it shows that he really wants to share what he's learned, not only with the companies that he finances, but also with the general public to the extent that people are interested in what he does. I think Ben acknowledges that Silicon Valley has issues when it comes to being too insular when it comes to understanding the implications of technology. On the other hand, and not surprisingly, he defended Silicon Valley and said that much of the trouble is a question of perception from the outside and that a lot of these things could be corrected, self-corrected even. I think that Ben Horowitz has sort of taken venture capital out of the back rooms and the dark rooms and given it a level of transparency that it hadn't had heretofore. And I think that serves the business really well because it is a secretive world. And by definition, it will always be that way because it's competitive. But I think to the extent that he can add transparency, that's a good thing. Horowitz, co-founder of venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, and author of the new book, What You Do Is Who You Are. Ben, yes. nice to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Andy. So I want to talk about your book, of course, but um, also want to talk about what's going on in the world of venture capital. All right, all right. And uh, there's a lot of interest uh, here at Yahoo Finance, in particular, about IPOs, and of course, mm -hmm. all the talk of we work and the cycle and what's going on, a lot of people saying that's a sign of the top. <laughs> what is your take on things? Hey, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think WeWork is very specific to WeWork. Um, you know, it's a unique company uh, with a unique founder um, and a kind of unmatched investment from SoftBank. So like, I think WeWork is WeWork. I don't think it has anything to do with the rest of the sector. Are the valuations though getting lofty and you're seeing companies doing multiple classes of stock? Are they pushing the envelope a little bit? Uh, you know, I don't think that the valuations generally, like so lofty venture capital valuations, I would say are always a little lofty or a little low. So they're usually, most private companies are worth somewhere between half and kind of double to triple what they should be. And that's just kind of the nature, like maybe a third to double or triple because it's a very liquid market. Um, but that doesn't really constitute in itself a big problem like 1999. <laughs> uh, so, you know, generally there, you know, some things are a little ahead of their valuation, some things are behind their valuation, but um, it's not a super unusual period, I would say. And one more thing about the IPO business um, and the venture world, and that is some people have complained that the stocks, the companies remain private too long for various mm -hmm. reasons, but then all the profits are going to Sand Hill Road as opposed to the general investing public. Is there something there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, probably one of the biggest issues we have as you know, economically as a country is that you have all these amazing new businesses that are getting created in the United States. Um, but the way the regulation has went, uh, you know, kind of starting in the late 90s, for various reasons, um, has made it very kind of expensive 
dangerous, um, et cetera, to be public, uh, you know, making it very easy to sue companies who are public and this and that and the other. And as a result, I think we have about half the number, maybe a little less than half the number of public companies that we had 20 years ago, which basically just takes the investing, the growth opportunity away from, you know, regular people and puts them all in the hands of the elite. And I think that's, uh, or the economically elite, I should say, <laughs> maybe not, you know, intellectually elite. Uh, and that, you know, that that's a terrible problem. And, you know, I think we either have to make it a lot, we have to kind of close the gap between what it means to be private and what it means to be public from a just general standpoint. So it's a smoother transition. Any ideas on how to do that? Well, I think there's one, like, I, I, I just think you have to um, make what it takes to sue a company more reasonable. D&O insurance for an average company is runs like, over $10 million a year. So if you think about, if you're a growth company, let's say you have like 50 million in revenue. Well, if you go public, like 20% of your revenue goes to insurance. <laughs> and so, and that's just the state of litigation and how easy it's been made to do, you know, frivolous lawsuits and so forth. You also have things like <coughs> Reg FD, which create an asymmetric relationship. Companies are under Reg FD. Nobody ever enforces that against hedge funds. So like I can make up stories plant stories, write whatever I want as a hedge fund, and then as a company, you're very boxed in. So it's tricky from that standpoint. There's other things like the short order handling rules and so forth. But the whole regulatory structure of being public has just made it such that it's very dangerous and difficult for a small growth company uh, to be a public company. So yeah, things wait till they get to a billion dollars in revenue, and there's clearly not as much growth left at that point. So you're a VC, but you're an author. Yes. What, how do you reconcile that? What do you like doing more, writing books or being a venture capitalist? Well, you know, like as an author, I'm, I would say writing a little more from my perspective as an entrepreneur when I was an entrepreneur and building companies than I am as a VC. Although being a VC enhances it because I see a lot of companies, I would say from a knowledge perspective. But I'm really just, you know, I can see where people struggle in kind of building a company, because uh, I have a great purview of that. And having been through it, um, I can then articulate, okay, here are the things that you don't know that I didn't know that would be good to know. And uh, you know, so far, people seem to like the books, so. So you, in this book, you draw on some non-traditional characters for management lessons, a gang leader, Genghis Khan. Yes. How did you think about that? What's the conceit? Well, look, so in the first place, when you're talking about culture, culture is complex, right? Because it's not, you know, like people have, you know, these books about, oh, here's your KPIs and your OKRs and your mission statement and so forth. But like that doesn't really dictate what your culture is going to be. Um, your culture ends up being these little difficult things like, well, do people return a phone call today or next week? Do they show up to the meeting on time or 10 minutes late? Do they, you know, in a business deal, did they focus on the partnership or the price? Like all those little things. And so how do you move that? How do you influence that? Turns out to be, you know, very complex. And the problem with culture is if I already have the culture, right, then I can't even see that it's culture. Like if it's something that, I am doing, <laughs> then I don't even know, like, that's just the right thing to do. That's just who I am or whatever. And so in explaining how it works, um, I thought it was much better idea to start with 
cultures that weren't familiar. So you could see, okay, why are they, you know, why does a prison gang like act that way? Um, how, how does prison culture get so violent? What are the steps that take place? How did the only successful slave revolt occur? What's hard about slave culture as you go to military culture? These are things most people can look at and go, okay, I'm not identifying with that so I can understand like what's cultural and what's not. But the techniques that they use, you know, be it in prison or the Haitian Revolution or the ancient samurai, are the exact techniques that you would use to move culture in a company. And so it's very relevant in that way. What causes a company to have good culture or bad culture, Ben? Well, you know, I, I would kind of back off on good or bad. I think cohesive and not cohesive is a better way to look at it because not every culture is for every company. And like what's good for Amazon is not necessarily good for Apple, um, for example. So Amazon, known for their frugality, they've done things technique-wise to make it. They used to have right there famously the you get a door as your desk, you know, on some two-by-fours or whatever. Uh, Apple would never do that. Um, but Amazon's strategy is to be the low-cost leader. Um, Apple's strategy is to have the most beautiful, high-design products in the world. So Apple's got, you know, whatever, $2,000 doorknobs probably on their campus and a $5 billion campus. Amazon's not going to have that. Amazon has low prices. Apple's got beautiful products, two different cultures. Not, one's not good and one's not bad. But when you're talking about like what makes a culture cohesive, there's a many, many, many things. Uh, and it really gets to um, what drives people to behave in the way you'd like them to behave when you're not looking. And that's a, you know, that's a lot of complex, there's tremendous complexity, particularly as you grow, um, particularly as you bring in people from different cultures into your company. And so that's, you know, that's essentially why I wrote the book, uh, you know, to get at that. Isn't it, I mean, when you talk about culture, there are various constituents for a company, but it's primarily the employees, right? Yes. And, and so isn't it really honesty and decency and a place where people really decency. want to come to work? Right, what is decency? I, is that what you're laughing at? What are you laughing about? Well, like, yeah, you know, people go, oh, like, we're, we're, we are integrity. Um, and you go, okay, Those well, Those are the people who usually aren't. Yeah, but, and you know it gets it, it can get very ambiguous in a company context. So, for example, you go and you raise money from some venture capitalists. You say, "Look, we're definitely going to hit this forecast over the next three quarters." Then you're out selling your products, and you're like, "Oh, we're a little short of the forecast." And you have a customer come in, and you go, "Wow, like if we just told them this was going to be here in two months rather than in the six months it's really going to take, then we get the deal, and we could keep our promise to the investors that we just made." Or, but we'd be sort of lying to them. But how big a lie is that? You know, you get into these kinds of things. So the definition of what you're doing and what you mean by integrity and in what context ends up being really important. Um, and, you know, and this is why, you know, one of the things that Toussaint Louverture did in the slave revolution is, you know, he was very, very, very big on this concept of, okay, we're going to distinguish our culture by being more ethical than the Europeans that we're fighting against. Uh, and one of the things that he did is he said, okay, look, everybody's pillaging. We're not going to pillage. But you can't just say you're not going to pillage because, okay, is that really the right thing to do? Because you're, you're, you're in this mercenary war over sugar. Um, and you have to pay the soldiers. Your guys don't have any money. Um, so you're really going to jeopardize the war over like this ethic that like nobody else here cares about. But what he said is, we're fighting for liberty. And you can't get liberty 
if you're taking people's liberty away. And so if you think about what that does, is it changes the whole motivation of the army. And so culturally, now they're fighting for a higher cause. That then rippled out to the broader community, and the stories are like, you know, the French came in, they set the plantations on fire, they, you know, stole all the cattle, they, you know, took everything, and then the slaves came in half naked, didn't take anything. And as a result, Toussaint got the, the local support. Um, for what he did, but like that's integrity works like that. It doesn't work like oh, just do the right thing. So like the, nobody knows what the right thing is. Right. So the end never justifies the means. Well, I think that um, yeah, generally in life, the ends don't justify the means. Right. You know, once you compromise that, you're you are actually the bad guy. And I think that this is <laughs> this is actually a good story for the broader culture. You know, like if you're running around calling people names, you know, on Twitter or whatever, like you're actually the bad guy even though you're calling somebody out for being the bad guy, because like th that kind of behavior, the ends don't justify the means culturally. You take your place to, you know, you take your place yourself to a place of hatred and like that kind of culture, like where I hate everybody. Okay, that's its own punishment. Um, and I think that what Toussaint figured out was the opposite. Right. You know, you do the right thing, even if it's not the right means for winning the war, um, it can pay off bigger. In the Silicon Valley, isn't there a tendency to, I mean, we were talking about projections, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a stretch target, and then I'm trying to get money from Andreessen Horowitz. Mm -hmm. And when does a stretch target become a lie? I mean, yeah. this sort of gets to Elizabeth Holmes, right? Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, she said that she had a vision. Yeah. And... <laughs> yeah, so without getting into the details, which I, I you know, I... Um, Theranos? Yeah, yes, yeah, so without, like, uh, I, I don't want to kind of pound on... Elizabeth, uh, not that it isn't a fantastical, amazingly crazy story. Um, but yeah, I think that's right, that you get into, well, what is it? Is fake it till you make it okay? Right. Well, look, if you do that fake it till you make it, that's not just going to happen with your VCs, right? Like, you're going to fake it to your employees. You're going to promise them stuff that you can't necessarily deliver on, like all that kind of thing. Like, that's a big cultural decision to fake it till you make it, like to legalize lying, um, in a sense. So all, all these things do end up mattering and, uh, and have long-term broad implications. So there's that. I mean, are there problems with culture in Silicon Valley and problems that are unique to Silicon Valley in terms of business culture? Some people say there are. They're clueless, spoiled brats, et cetera. Yeah, so so, that, so I think that's just, you know, like, finger pointing. Like people are trying to go in and create, you know, something out of nothing um, on a dream. So like, I, definitely, I want. I think people think that kind of stuff are just like that's just a weird jealous envy thing. Now, because the a lot of the founders are very young, don't have a lot of management or organizational experience, and the companies grow very fast. There are things that I think, um, you know, things get uniquely chaotic, or maybe not uniquely chaotic, but they do, like their Silicon Valley struggles with that issue. Um, and it's very complex. It's very complex to kind of build a culture out of nothing. And, and look, no, even the very best company cultures are not anywhere near 100%. Like there's no, nobody's got a company where like, 
everybody, you know, tells the truth all the time or like everybody like is very courteous and always returns a phone call and like always like like that's just not the way like it's not possible to achieve 100% compliance on a culture. So every culture has got problems. I think the things that Silicon Valley runs into have a lot to do with just how fast they grow, how many people they're getting from other cultures. You know, you hire 50 people from Google, it's hard to resist that cultural force uh, and these kinds of things. And that's, you know, that's a lot of what I, I try to get at is how do you solve these very, very hard problems. But these companies become so big, Ben, too. I mean, you go to Google and you go to Facebook. I mean, they're all of a sudden giant companies that- Very fast. Very fast that have the run the risk of becoming insular, right? Yeah, well, all, all cultures. All culture, all right. I'm not, that's yeah. not singular to yes. Silicon Valley, but maybe it's yes. surprising to them because, you know, 10 years ago they were six people and now they're tens of thousands. Well, and success is distorting, right? Because yeah. you do something, you succeed, you draw that connection whether there's a connection or not, right? Like, you know, you, you always run the risk of being like a cargo cult. You know this story, right? Right. Where they, you know, the stuff drops out of the sky and they were doing a dance or whatever and that's a dance to get stuff to drop out of the sky. So th there's always, you do run into that. And that's just like one of the, you know, many problems that you get as you grow. But would you really, when you're talking about designing, you're, you're not trying to solve everything. You're just trying to say, look, for what we're trying to do as a company, what are the behaviors we need um, to differentiate ourselves to, to, and to like make that strategy succeed? Uh, so I'll give you like a really simple example. So at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the things we wanted to do is very early on is we need to respect the entrepreneurial process and the entrepreneur. Now, every single VC in Silicon Valley around the world would make that statement. Right. It's, a, it's the obvious statement. but like if you think about the daily interactions that you have as a VC, it's like this. I have the money, you want the money, you gotta come see me, and I decide whether you get the money. So psychologically, I all of a sudden feel like the big person and you're the little person, and so what are the behaviors that you always hear about? Oh, they show up 30 minutes late to meet with you. Oh, they ghost you when you, you know, like you leave the meeting, they're not investing, but they don't even return your email after that after you took the time to go down there, wait 30 minutes for your meeting and do that. So is that respect? Now that's like the ultimate in disrespect. So how do you deal with that, you know, if you're, if you're kind of a firm? And so what we did is several things. One is we put, I put a rule in place, if you're late for a meeting with an entrepreneur, you pay $10 a minute. Oh, you had to go to the bathroom? No problem, you're five minutes late, $50. Oh, you had a really important phone call on the most important deal we're doing and you're 10 minutes late, no problem, $100. And people are like, well, Ben, why are you charging me to work here? Like, I'm working, <laughs> like, you should be paying me, not charging me. And I'm like, because I need you to plan what you're doing so that you respect the entrepreneur's time. And that mechanism where every single time they have to meet with an entrepreneur, they have to think about, why they have to be on time and why they have to plan to go to the bathroom early and why they have to end their prior meeting in time to get to that next meeting. That process sets the culture. And so when you're talking about culture, you're talking about programming it and mechanisms that make people or encourage people to move in the direction that you want them to move. I love that specific example, but how much money have you collected and where does it go? Does Thousands it go of dollars. Philanthropy? Um, yeah, no, no. So we, we have taken to kind of just giving it directly to the entrepreneurs lately. Huh. We, we also have a 
pool historically and so forth. But what about when the shoes? Most on? people show up on time. Right, I would imagine. What happens when the shoe's on the other foot, though? In other words, when you have a company that's in the driver's seat where all the VCs are chasing it, how do you sell Andreessen Horowitz then? Yeah, look, and a lot of it, and this is this kind of gets back to it. A lot of it, if you ask entrepreneurs, and we're like without um, overly talking smack. If you poll entrepreneurs, we rate out very highly. And the reason we rate out very highly when you get into it is the culture. And it's just we feel different than other firms. We respond differently. Um, our, the interaction is different. I'll give you another example. When we reject an entrepreneur, the rule is you have to do that in, you have to reject them explicitly and say why. And to ensure that we do that with quality, we survey every single entrepreneur that we reject with a, you know, basically customer satisfaction survey. And nobody else does that. And our number one referrer of deals, our number one source is rejected entrepreneurs. And so this is kind of a, a cultural statement we put out there that ends up being a differentiator for the business. This conversation usually goes to good versus evil. It gets very Shakespearean. That guy's evil. Like, we need to take him down. He's set a toxic culture, da 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 That's not actually what's going on. It's very rare that there's like a bad intention CEO that's setting a bad culture. What's really going on is kind of a Greek tragedy. It's humans against the gods. And the gods are the system. And the system is the culture. And designing a system that works is very, very difficult. And by putting all the emphasis on this like false whatever narrative of good versus evil, we miss the whole point and the opportunity to improve it. Like I hear things about, you know, oh, well, how can these guys, it's like, well, they, if they just studied liberal arts, they would like, that's complete. Like, first of all, they're not going back to school. <laughs> it doesn't help anybody. And you're just basically saying these guys are evil. And so that's why the culture, but they're not evil. They, they have, most of them are super earnest, have great intent, want their companies to be great. They just don't know how to do it. But is there a problem, Ben, with what's going on in social media, those companies, with Twitter, with Facebook, with YouTube? Is there a cultural problem? Is there something that needs to be addressed from a regulatory standpoint? So I think that we are in a brave new world, um, and nobody yet knows how to deal with it. And this is actually, I would say, the ultimate <laughs> humans against the gods systems problem. So if you look at the history of technology and media, um, it is a history of really changing the world. So the radio got Hitler elected. You'd agree with that. Like I think most people would say without the radio, Hitler never takes power. Is the radio evil? Were the people who invented the radio evil? Like what was going on there? Television got Kennedy elected. I think Nixon wins for sure without television. That's pretty well known. So like if you're a Republican is like television need to be dismantled. And then now, 2008, Facebook gets Barack Obama elected. And the funny thing about that, if you're like working at Facebook and you're Mark Zuckerberg, what does it say? Yay, Barack Obama, we love Facebook. Amazing, he's a social media genius, da 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 Then like Facebook gets Donald Trump elected. Well, we've got a crisis. And so like it was very hard for the company to anticipate that that was gonna be the reaction given what had just happened and what had happened just historically. But yes, we are in a world where we have to look at social media and say, well, what are the rules? Like, what's the, what are the rules of the public square? 
we had rules when there were a thousand people in the square and it was all in the US. Now it's international and there's two billion people in the square and we don't have any rules and it is very chaotic and with consequences that are hard to predict and you know sometimes you know scary. So it has to be addressed. Um, but the idea that we're gonna like do something to Zuckerberg or do something to Jack and it's gonna like stop social media like, really? Like, you think we're going to turn back the clock? Like, oh, we'll just stop television. We'll just stop social media. We'll break it up. Like, that's not, you're not actually going to stop it. You might move it to China. How do you like their rules? <laughs> you know, Daryl Morey doesn't do a tweet, does a retweet, deletes it immediately, and they're ready to shut down the NBA. Like, do you want that as controlling your social norms? So, like, I think we have to think this through, actually. Not that there aren't problems. There are problems, but... This whole like vilify the CEO thing is just stupid. Have you given any thought to how we might address it though? Well, look, I think that it's very, very complex. So like, I don't want to prescribe like the answer <laughs> for like how we manage the public square like in two minutes because I think it's complicated. But I do think um, there's an answer that ought to be better than the world we were in because we now are in a place where everybody can have a voice. Now, how those voices work and what the rules of expressing that voice are, absolutely we need kind of to think about what that means a lot more than, than we used to in the past. But we ought to be able to get to a better world. And there's definitely no like turning back the clock. It's like Andy Grove said this, it was one of my favorite quotes from him. They asked him, is the microprocessor good or bad? And he was like, what are you talking about? That's like asking if steel is good or bad. It is, and we got to deal with it. And that's how I feel about social media. Like, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It is, and we have to deal with it. What do you think about the problem in the United States, if, if in fact you think it's a problem in terms of income and wealth inequality? And if you look, for instance, in the Bay Area, California writ large, maybe, mm -hmm. the homelessness problem. And it sort of struck me that people often talk about Silicon Valley, the greatest wealth creation in the history of the planet. And yet at the same time, homelessness in the Bay Area soared. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and it's, I think it's, um, like it's complex on many levels in that the people who are also governing both California and the city of San Francisco and so forth are the exact people who you would elect if you thought you cared about the homeless, right? Like they're the people, so like their policies, <laughs> like, clearly also aren't working, and so what is the answer is a, is a big question. It's definitely, a, I mean, like, it's probably one of the biggest problems that we're facing is, like, okay, how do we make the wealth work for everyone? Um, but that, too, is complex. It's not just a matter of going, like, I love the homeless, let's get, San Francisco has more money per capita, I think, than any city in the world to spend on this problem. And the mayor herself, London Breed, said, look, money, like, like more money isn't even necessarily the answer. Like, we haven't figured out the answer. Um, and I think, you know, like, she was being very earnest and thoughtful about it because we just had, like, this whole new bill to raise a lot more money to fix the homeless problem. But there's more to it than that, you know. And, uh, and I don't know, like, I, I, I don't want to say I know what the answer is, but I, I would just say, again, it's a systems problem. It's, it's complex, and we have to think about the consequences of things. It's not just evil people give the money to the good people. Yeah. I think they've kind of tried yeah. that too, right? I mean, yeah, they tried Apple it. has it a new program all, yeah. they're going to be trying to do yes. with housing. 
Yeah, look, and, and um, you know, and, and it's not just housing, like the, the housing for sure, you know, housing, just building housing is very, very expensive and complicated to do in the Bay Area. So one thing is like you have these, uh, whatever, not my backyard people who want to, re there's tremendously complex like infrastructure and lattice of housing rules. There's the associated corruption that goes with all that regulation. There's, um, and then you have, you layer on top of that uh, mental health issues and other things that can't just be addressed by housing that, you know, we, and in the US, like the whole fact that we have the words mental health is crazy, like it's health. Like how's your mental health and your physical health? They're very connected. Like if you have a mental health issue, you inevitably have a physical health issue. And often if you have a physical health issue, it causes a mental health issue. Yet from like a, an insurance standpoint, we separate them out. You know, you have to really get to the core issues of these things and not just go, well, that person has a lot of money and that person's homeless. So like that'll solve it because it didn't. What are the most exciting areas for investing as a VC right now? Um, so there's, there's tremendous uh, uh, opportunities in uh, financial services for one. So FinTech, as we call it, um, is growing amazingly fast. And this is actually you know, one of the kind of weird dividends of the financial crisis as it turns out that if you're a young person, you're like, not like you or I, like say in your 20s, you probably don't have a credit card and you may not have a banking account and you certainly don't trust banks the way we did. Um, and so that creates an opportunity for new businesses to come in um, and not have hidden fees or you know, all the crazy things. It's so funny, you know, we have these usury laws in the United States, but if you break them down, like the overdraft fees are way more, they exceed the user draft, the usury laws by a ton, but like they don't fall under the usury laws. So like regulating it is, is very tricky, but like new companies, competition can kind of beat regulation on delivering better financial services and that's happening all over the place. Um, computationally, computational biology is amazingly exciting in that you can now apply, because we have an information model of the human body as opposed to just a chemical model, we can now apply computer science techniques to doing diagnosis and and uh, engineering drugs and finding cures and so forth. So that's a, another great area. Um, cryptocurrency is like super interesting as it relates to a lot of the things we've been talking about, which is how do you scale a society, you know, internationally? Uh, and we start to get technologies that will help with things like money and law. And finally, Ben, this show is called Influencers. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious as to how you see you using your influence on the world. Well, I think, you know, like, and we've talked about a lot of things that I would say are um, probably beyond where my influence is good because it's out of my lane, beyond my pay grade, you know, some of these political issues. But in terms of how you build a company um, and how you build an organization that's a place where when people go to work there, they go, you know, that time of my life was well spent. And the way we treated people and the way we treated our customers and each other, um, that's why I want to live my life. Like I can help people build organizations like that. And that's why the book. Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, author of What You Do Is Who You Are. Thanks very much for joining okay, us. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Andy. I'm Andy Sturwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at SirWord.